I'm Captain Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners of the 74th Annual Hunger Games. I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. My name is Optimus Prime. I am the Futurist of War. Resistance is futile. Jedi's strength flows from the force, but beware of the dark side. Oh. 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 Anyway, that's kind of catchy. It's got a nice ring. I mean, it's not technically accurate. It's a gold-continued alloy. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello, everybody. This is Mark Daniels from the Great Pacific Northwest, and you are listening to Treks in Sci-Fi. This is episode 535 for Sunday, April 19th, 2015. I'm back this week with another classic science fiction movie. Today's movie is from Ib Milkjör. He was a Danish-born screenwriter and director of low-budget science fiction movies. He passed away last month at the age of 97. To honor Ib and his work, I've decided to review one of his movies. Today's movie is The Angry Red Planet from 1959. It stars Gerald Moore, Nora Hayden, Jack Crucian, and my personal favorite, Les Tremaine. Before I get into this week's podcast, I want to thank Rico for giving me another opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank those who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoy it. With that said, I'm going to play the trailer to this movie. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. I'll be back after the trailer with some movie information and a little information about Ib. Is there life on Mars? For centuries we have wondered. Now, for the first time, through the new photographic miracle of Cinemagic. You will see the wonders of this strange and terrifying world when you see the angry red planet. Join this daring crew, the first in the scientific race between nations to attempt to land on Mars. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, Fire! Blast off from Earth with courageous astronauts Gerald Moore, Nora Hayden, Les Tremaine, Jack Crucian. Travel thousands of miles through space to the unknown. <coughs> Cinemagic is not being shown to you now, but this wild land comes alive. In Cinemagic, you'll see buildings miles high in Cinemagic. Journey to the center of sudden terror in Cinemagic. Be trapped by the tentacles of man-devouring plants in Cinemagic. 
Feel the fire-hot breath of a 40-foot monster as it reaches for you in Cinemagic. Your eyes will see the wonders of a world no eyes in this world have ever seen before. I wonder, will we ever get back to Earth? The Angry Red Planet was released November 23, 1953. It has a running time of 83 minutes. The movie was directed by Ib Melchior. The screenplay was written by Ib Melchior and Sid Pink. The movie was produced by Norman Mayer and Sid Pink. It was distributed by American International Pictures. This movie was promoted as being filmed in Cinemagic. Cinemagic is a process where they take a black and white film negative, reverse it, making the dark areas light and the light areas dark. Then they tint the film red. This gives the film its unique look. All of the scenes on Mars were processed using Cinemagic. Now let's talk about Ib and the stars of this movie. Ib Melchior was born Ib Jorgen Melchior in Copenhagen, Denmark on September 17, 1917. He was a novelist, short story writer, film producer, film director, and screenwriter of low-budget American science fiction movies. He was the son of the opera singer and movie star, Loretz Melchior. He served in the United States Counterintelligence Corps during World War II. He participated in the liberation of Flossenburg concentration camp, as well as the discovery of stolen currency, gold, and art at the Merkers Kesselbach Cavern. He also captured a werewolf unit in 1945. Werewolves in the German army were German commandos. He captured six officers and 25 enlisted men by himself. He received the Bronze Star for heroic service. As a filmmaker, Ib wrote and directed The Angry Red Planet and The Time Travelers, which I saw last week. And it really looks like an Irwin Allen movie. I got another story for that, the Irwin Allen story to tell you at the end of this. So anyway, his most prolific credit was as co-screenwriter of the Byron Haskin critically acclaimed Robinson Crusoe on Mars. He also co-wrote the screenplays for two U.S.-Danish co-productions, Reptilicus and Journey to the Seventh Planet. He also provided the English language script for Mario Bava's Planet of the Vampires. One of Ibb's short stories, The Racer, was later adopted as Roger Corman's cult classic movie, Death Race 2000. In 1976, the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films awarded Ibb with its Golden Scroll Award of Merit for Outstanding Achievement. Here's a piece of trivia I was talking about earlier. Ibb accused Irwin Allen of stealing his concept for a television show. Ibb wrote an outline for a family show in 1960 set in space called Space Family Robinson. Irwin Allen would go on to create a show called Lost in Space, featuring a space family named Robinson. Ibb said that they told him to let it go or he would be blackballed from Hollywood. That's a trip. If he did write it and he didn't get credit for it, that's pretty messed up. Okay, that's all the information I have on Ibb. Now let's talk about the stars of this movie. Starting at the top, Gerald Moore played Colonel Tom O'Banion. He looks and acts kind of like Humphrey Bogart. He was born June 11, 1914. He was an American radio, film, and television character actor 
who appeared in more than 500 radio plays, 73 films, and over 100 television shows. He has 154 credits as an actor on IMDb. He was the voice of Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic, and the Green Lantern in the Fantastic Four and Aquaman cartoon series. He passed away November 9, 1968, while filming a television pilot in Sweden. He was 54 years old. Next up, Nora Hayden. She was Dr. Iris Ryan. She was born Nora Helene Hayden in New York City on September 29, 1930. She was noticed as a photo model at age 19 when she was featured in the December 1949 issue of Glamorous Models magazine. She will best be remembered for her role in this movie. She passed away August 10, 2013 at the age of 82. Next up, Jack Crucian. He played Chief Warrant Officer Sam Jacobs. He was a Canadian radio, film, television, and stage actor. He was born Jack Joseph Crucian in Winnipeg, Manitoba on April 20th, 1922. He started his radio career in high school. He had several roles and programs made especially for Armed Forces Radio in the 1940s and 1950s. His movie career is highlighted by his performance as neighbor Dr. Dreyfus in Billy Wilder's The Apartment, which is a really good movie, for which he received an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Jack has 216 credits on IMDb as an actor. You've seen him in tons of TV shows. He was in Batman, Dragnet, Barney Miller, Columbo, to name a few. He always plays the ethnic roles. He's either the Italian father or the Jewish grandfather. He was the Hispanic man who was one of the first three people killed in the War of the Worlds. He passed away April 2nd, 2002 at the age of 80. Last but not least, Les Tremaine, he played Dr. Theodore Goodell. And I have to say it, if there was a person that they modeled Dr. Benton Quest after, it was him. And he really looks like Johnny Quest's dad in this movie when he pulls the pipe out. Les Tremaine was a radio, film, and television actor. He was born Lester Tremaine in London, England on April 16, 1913. His family moved from England to Chicago, Illinois when he was four years old. He started in community theater as a teenager. He was a vaudeville dancer and worked as an amusement park barker. He began working in radio when he was 17 years old. During the 1930s and 40, Tremaine was heard on as many as 45 shows a week. He did a morning talk show with his second wife called The Tremaines. He was once named one of the three most distinctive voices on American radio. The other two voices were Bing Crosby and President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In 1974, he commented he had been in more than 30 movies, but it's from radio that most people remember me. After doing 30,000 broadcasts, Tremaine was elected to the National Radio Hall of Fame in 1995. He passed away April 16th, 2003 at the age of 90 and that's all the information i have on ib and this movie now let's get into the movie actually i need to back that up a minute before we get into the movie i gotta explain the backstory to you first three months before the movie starts the rocket ship mr1 lifts off and heads for mars the crew consists of colonel tom o'banion 
United States Air Force, the pilot navigator, Dr. Iris Ryan, brilliant young authority on the sciences of biology and zoology, daughter of the late Professor Alfred Ryan. Professor Theodore Gattel, the designer of the rocket ship and the world's foremost authority on space and rocketry. And Chief Warrant Officer Sam Jacobs, electronics and radar expert. During their landing on Mars, Earth loses contact with the MR-1 crew. The crew is presumed to have perished during the landing. The movie starts 61 days later at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. A group of military officers and scientists meet to discuss the discovery of the missing experimental spaceship MR-1 in orbit. Major General George Trieger devises a cautious plan to bring the MR-1 back to Earth via remote control. At 0300 this morning, the expeditionary X-1 rocket ship, missing for 61 days, was sighted by Mount Palomar, drifting in orbit some 90,000 miles out in space. All attempts to establish radio communication have failed so far. We don't know if anyone is left alive on board. The MR-1 appears to be a dead ship. We've had no contact with the rocket since it entered Mars orbit over two months ago and reported preparing to land on the planet. The ship was believed to have crashed in the landing attempt. But she didn't. Gentlemen, the Mars rocket must be retrieved and brought back to Earth intact. That's a tall order, George. I know. But the recording instruments on that ship contain priceless information covering the entire trip. We must have it. Professor Weiner, what are our chances? They depend on several factors, General. The MR-1 is, of course, equipped with robot control, which can be activated by remote triggering from Earth, if they're operative. The Nevada base is alerted to handle it. They're on standby. Go on, Professor. If there's enough fuel on board, we can send the ship homing for the Nevada base. And if the fuel holds out through the reentry deceleration, we can set her down safely. Here's another if. What if there is someone on board, alive? Major Ross, has communications established any contact? No, sir. None. Could be radio failure. Someone must have taken the ship off Mars. The unexpected remotely controlled acceleration of, uh, of... Five, six Gs. Five, six Gs could be dangerous to them, even fatal. And how long will they last if we leave them out there? Then it's decided. We take off for Nevada at once. The spaceship is successfully returned to Earth and lands in the Nevada desert. Dr. Ryan and an unidentified man are the only survivors of the original four-man crew. The unidentified man is gravely ill with a hideous gelatinous growth on his arm. They are taken to Norwood Air Force Hospital to receive medical attention. Dr. Frank Gordon and General Trieger hope that Dr. Ryan can tell them more about the growth on the man's arm. I've given him a sedative. Should keep him quiet. He's running a high temperature. But Gordon, that that growth. What are we up against? I don't know. It's spreading rapidly. Do you have any idea what it might be? No, I haven't yet. If we only knew how or by what he was infected, we might know how to combat the disease. But we're working in the dark. What about the tape records? Has anything been learned from them? That's just it. General Trigger informed me that there are no records. No tapes at all? Yes, many of them. Marked and filed from the first day out. They've examined about half of them by now, all of them empty. Nothing on them? Silent, as though they'd been erased by some powerful magnetic force. Trigger expects they're all like that. 
Then we may never know. We have one chance. The girl. She is actually our only hope. If she could give us a lead. What is Dr. Ryan's condition? Exhaustion, shock, she's resting. We should be able to talk to her in a couple of hours. We have very little time. I hope she comes through. Dr. Gordon and General Trieger asked Dr. Ryan to try to remember what happened on the trip, starting from the beginning. Dr. Ryan recalls the long trip to Mars was routine and the communications with Earth was uninterrupted. On the 47th day of the mission, they safely land on the surface of Mars. Well, should we go out and claim the planet in the name of Brooklyn? Not yet, Sam. Open the viewports, Tom. Okay. Turn on the outside mic, Sam. Yes, sir. The crew was concerned that they could not see any movement through their observation port. They turned on their outside microphones and heard absolute silence. No surprises, Tom. The atmosphere is pretty much like we thought. Thin. Extremely thin. Not enough oxygen to sustain us, but undoubtedly enough for some kind of native animal life. Well, like you said, Professor, no surprises. <laughs> You seen anything yet, Sam? Just those frozen vegetables. Any sounds? Not a peep. If those Martians are out there, they must be invisible. No movement at all. Words, fellas, my grandmother used to say. Keep your eyes open, huh? Yes, sir. We've landed near the equatorial belt. Now, if there is any native intelligence around here, it should be in this area. Oh, I think you must be right. Sorry about the sound effects. Oh, forget it, Irish. This crazy silence and lack of movement's gotten us all. Doesn't make any sense, Sammy. Something's got to move. What's the matter, Colonel? Your ears twitch? Ah, uh, just a hunch. You know what? I know there's something out there. Sure, like the invisible Martian? Are you certain the outside mics are on, Sam? Full volume. You know, the atmosphere is very rare. It wouldn't conduct sound too well. Of course. That might also explain why the plants don't move. No breeze. I wonder. Could it be... intentional? Intentional? And I know it sounds unreasonable, but it just doesn't seem natural. You mean you think it's controlled? What beings could possibly exercise such fantastic control? Well, there's one way to find out. I'm going out there. Tom, wait, I, I don't no, want no, to... No, no, we'll all go. It's about time Iris and I had a chance to use some of this expensive lab equipment of ours. All right, get your suits. You know something, Professor? First time in my life I've ever really been scared. There's nothing out there except a bunch of crazy plants. It takes a brave man to admit his fears, Sam. We're all afraid of the unknown. While suiting up to go outside, Dr. Ryan sees a horrible three-eyed creature staring at her through the observation port. What is it, Irish? Port outside. Tom, it was horrible. Stay with us, Sammy. There, Irish. 
but I saw it. What did you see? It was like a huge, distorted face with, with three bulging eyes. But there's nothing there now. I tell you, it was there. Hey, three eyes. What a crazy peeping Tom, huh? It was staring right at me. There's nothing moving. There's nothing there. You don't believe me, do you? Hey, everybody. Come on, with all this waiting around, it's a wonder I didn't get to see the thing. I did see it, Sam. I really did. Please. Couldn't you just make believe you didn't? I'd be much less scared. If that thing is out there, we won't find out about it in here. You're so right. Let's go out and take a look, Attell. Iris, you stay here with Sammy. Not on your life, Colonel O'Banion. I'm going, too. Well, hey, wait for me. They leave the ship and head into the strange jungle. Dr. Ryan finds a vine and follows it to a large carnivorous plant. The plant grabs her. She screams, Colonel Banyan, Sam, and Dr. Gittell rush to the plant with machetes and Sam's ultrasonic gun named Cleo. They free Dr. Ryan and kill the plant with Sam's ultrasonic gun. I think so. Just let me count to ten. Count to a hundred if you like. I'm all right now. What was that thing? It's a giant carnivorous plant, Sam. It feeds by trapping animals and digesting them. Live. Lots of luck. Here, come on, take a look. Back to the ship. I agree. We've had enough excitement and swashbuckling for one day. Huh? I'm for that. Any swash I ever had just came unbuckled. Let's go. They decide to head back to their spaceship. Later that day, Dr. Cattell has a theory. A super intelligent life force is controlling everything on Mars, and it is watching them. Was that thing really trying to kill Iris? It wasn't just a friendly embrace. But why weren't we attacked before? We all passed that, that plant creature. What are you driving at, Professor? Well, I can't help feeling that we're being watched. That there is some purpose behind it all. Hey, what's the matter, Professor? Your ears twitch too? <laughs> Obviously, there is animal life here. Probably intelligent life as well. And yet we haven't seen any. Now, this quiet, this lack of motion. Oh, you still think it's, it's intentional, controlled? Uh, I, I don't know. But why? Perhaps in a way we're being controlled too. Through the actions of these lower life forms. Kept harmless, so to speak. What could control all life here? Well, it, it could be some super intelligent community mind, I suppose. Community mind? Yes. Like the inexplicable, mysterious control which keeps a colony of ants functioning in perfect unity back on Earth. Look, I got news for you, Professor. I'll take the ants any day. Uh, we have four days left to find out. The next day, they head back to the jungle. Dr. Ryan cuts off a sample from what she thinks is a plant. 
It's not a plant. It's a 40-foot-tall rat-bat spider creature. Sam's ultrasonic gun has no effect on it until Colonel O'Banion tells Sam to aim for its eyes. It blinds the creature and it hobbles away. They continue until they find a lake, but they decide to explore it the next day. Later, back at the spaceship, Colonel O'Banion and Dr. Cadell decide it's too risky to stay on Mars and decide to abort the mission immediately. So everybody straps in, the rockets fire off, but the ship doesn't lift off. What is it, Tom? We can save our fuel. We're not going anywhere. Look, every pen is glued to the top. We're in some sort of a force field. Tremendously powerful. Holding us right here. The control. Whoever they are, they don't want us to leave. Colonel O'Banion becomes frustrated and wonders what do the Martians want. Why don't they come out in the open, whoever they are? This waiting. Uncertainty. Not knowing. Why are they keeping us here? What do they want with us? What are we? Guinea pigs? Take it easy, Irish. Easy. Now think a minute. They can't really want to harm us. If they did, they could have destroyed us a long time ago. They must have another reason for keeping us here. Tom, I've run a few tests. Uh, we're being held by a gravitational pull so strong that it would take a hundred times the thrust power we have to break free. I wonder, will we ever get back to Earth again? Oh, we're not going to wait. Sam, break out the boat. We'll see what's across that lake. Later that day, they return to the lake with a rubber raft. As they paddle across the lake, a huge Martian city appears on the horizon. As they paddle closer to the city, a giant amoeba-like monster arises from the lake. The four paddle furiously to get away from the monster. When they get to the shore, they run back to their spaceship with the monster right behind them. As they enter the open hatch, the monster grabs Sam and absorbs him. They make it inside the ship only to find that the giant amoeba has surrounded their spaceship. Iris, what is your opinion of that creature? Well, I'm sure it's a unicellular animal. There's two areas inside it must be the nucleus and the contractile vacuole. Oh, wait a minute. Whoa. <laughs> Let me in on it, virus, huh? It's like an amoeba, Tom. A giant amoeba. One single cell without intelligence, without a nervous system at all. It reacts completely on instinct to external stimuli. Now, we must be safe in here. The amoeba engulfs its prey and digests it with extremely strong acids. It's, it's trying to get to us. It's incredible. Well, I wouldn't say that, Tom. Not after what we saw it do to poor Sam. Yeah. It'll take time, but it probably can eat right through the ship. Oh, we've got to get rid of it some way. But how? Can't even be touched with anything we have. Iris, you've experimented with amoeba on Earth. What sort of thing affects them? They're almost impossible to kill. Even if you cut them in half, both parts will live. Now, there's got to be some way to get at it. It can insist, Tom. That is, secrete and form a sort of protective envelope. That's how it withstood the sonic gun. Heat, fire. I could turn on the rocket. Oh, you can't do that, Tom. With that creature clogging our thrust chamber, we'd have an internal explosion. Well, we got to do something. I can't think of anything. Hey, wait a minute. 
I do remember. We experimented with electricity. What happened? Well, the, the power from a small flashlight battery killed thousands of amoeba. That's it, electric shock. I can generate half a million volts. But how are you going to get to it to electrocute it? You can't go outside or, or even open the airlock. I won't have to. But what I have in mind could backfire. If you both don't agree, I won't go through with it. What is your plan, Tom? I'll need your help. Check me out. This ship has a double hull, right? That's correct. The outer hull acts as a meteor bumper. And the outer hull is completely insulated from the inner one? It's quite effectively. Good. Now, is there any way I can get to the outer hull from in here? One place only. The detector instrument cable access channel. I want to feed the radar power through the outer hull. Can it be done? Well, it would take a lot of rewiring, but yes, we can do it. You see, what I have in mind is to feed the current through the outer hull without it spilling back into the inner one. What do you think? And if there is a spill? Then we won't have to wait for that thing to eat through to us. The plan to electrify the hull works, and the giant amoeba moves away from their spaceship. The Martians release the spaceship and allow the ship to leave, but give the people of Earth a warning. During the liftoff, Dr. Cadell has a heart attack and later dies. Colonel O'Banion has become gravely ill. The growth on his arm continues to get larger. Dr. Ryan has to rewire the ship and take care of Colonel O'Banion. The next scene is of her in her hospital bed recalling her story. Dr. Gordon deduces that Colonel O'Banion has an enzymatic infection and gives him a shot. However, it doesn't work. Dr. Ryan decides to do some research herself and finds the solution. Dr. Gordon, I think we found the solution. What can we do? I'll show you. Electricity. We have already thought of that, Dr. Ryan. But any kind of electric shock strong enough to kill the amoeba will also kill Tom. I know. Then how? We've been attacking the alien amoeba as if it were a disease, but it isn't. It's an animal. An animal with instincts. And most important of all, a will to act. It only makes it harder to destroy. And gives it a vulnerability we also have. That of making a wrong choice. Look. We had two identical tissue cultures there, both infested with our own microscopic amoeba and placed very close to each other. One we left alone. The other we subjected to light periodic electric shocks. Before long, all the amoeba on the irritated culture had made their choice. They moved to the nearby undisturbed culture. Then that is what we have to do. We will prepare a large tissue culture and place it next to the infected arm, then subject Tom to electric shocks. The electric shock treatment works and the amoeba leaves Colonel O'Banion's arm. While recovering in the hospital, Colonel O'Banion and Dr. Ryan discuss their plans for the future. General Trigger interrupts them and plays the Martian warning on the last recorded tape. Tom, Iris, I have something I want you to hear. You were right. The whole speech was on the recorder, the last tape. I think you should listen to it. Sounds important. Judge for yourself. Mr. Weiner. Men of Earth, we of the planet Mars give you this warning. Listen carefully and remember, we have known your planet Earth since the first creature crawled out of the primeval slime of your seas to become man. For millennia, we have followed your progress. 
For centuries we have watched you, listened to your radio signals, and learned your speech and your culture. And now you have invaded our home. Technological adults, but spiritual and emotional infants. We kept you here, deciding your fate. Had the lower forms of life on our planet destroyed you, we would not have interfered. But you survived. Your civilization has not progressed beyond destruction, war, and violence against yourselves and others. Do as you will to your own and to your planet, but remember this warning. Do not return to Mars. You will be permitted to leave for this sole purpose. Carry the warning to Earth. Do not come here. We can and will destroy you, all life on your planet, if you do not heed us. You have seen us, been permitted to glimpse our world. Go now, warn mankind not to return unbidden. And that's the end of the movie. Now it's time for some movie trivia. This movie was filmed in 10 days on a budget of $200,000. Sid Pink wrote the screenplay for this movie at home at his kitchen table. He used his kids as critics. A quarter of the film's budget was used on the cinemagic process. The 40-foot tall alien monster was actually a marionette about 15 inches high. It was essentially a combination of a rat, bat, spider, crab. The rat, bat, spider, crab monster is the same one featured on the cover of the album Walk Among Us by the Misfits. Jack Crucian is one of the few actors killed by Martians in two different movies. The Martians killed him in War of the Worlds, and the Martian killed him in this movie. And that's all I have for trivia. Here's my comments about this movie. I watched the 2001 DVD release from MGM. It's part of their Midnight Movie series. The only special feature you get with this DVD is the original theatrical trailer. That's it. The picture and sound quality are fair. The acting and the script are fair at best. The cinematic process made the movie look very unique. I haven't seen a movie ever that looked like this movie. I saw this movie for the first time when I was eight or nine years old. The things I remember most from this movie are the iconic rat, bat, spider, crab monster, the giant amoeba with the spinning eyeball, and the red tint of all the Mars scenes. The red tint made the movie unique. You, you just don't see movies like that. It's probably one of a kind. Now let's talk about the characters in this movie. Oh my goodness. Gerald Moore. He looks like he could have been part of the Rat Pack. All he was missing was a drink in one hand and a cigarette in the other. He had a, They all wore jumpsuits. Well, he kept his jumpsuit buttoned down so, you know, so he could show his chest hair. He wore dress socks, and they all had loafers on. It's like you're going to space, but you look like you're going to go have a drink. And I didn't get it as a kid, but rewatching this movie as an adult, man, he was hitting on Dr. Ryan the entire trip to Mars. Like I said, I didn't notice it when I was a kid, but watching it as an adult now, wow, there's a scene where he's talking to her, this guy's got game. I'm going to play that clip, and I'm telling you, this guy wasn't thinking about Mars at all. He had one thing on his mind, and it was not Mars. I'm telling you. Mars Rocket One Ration B. Mars, the angry red planets. Sounds so foreboding, doesn't it? Mars, ancient god of war. 
afraid, Iris? A little. Apprehensive, I guess. Oh, we all are. We wouldn't be human. I know this is a funny way for a scientist to feel, but I wonder if some things aren't better unknown. That's what they said on the Santa Maria before they discovered the new world. By mistake. You know, Irish, you're the first scientist I've ever known with lovely long red hair. And you're the first pilot I've ever gone to Mars with. And listen, my name is Iris, not Irish. I never know if you're calling me by name or nationality. When I call you by name, you'll know it. Okay, and then we have Dr. Ryan's character. She's pretty much the same character that's in all these 1950s movies. She's there to scream and cook the food. That's about it. But I do give her credit for finding the cure for Colonel O'Banion, though. Hey, what's chow, huh? Coming up. Come on, Tom, you can help me with the rations. I'd rather be carving a thick steak at Tony's. Make it medium rare and I'll join you. Will you take a rain check? If it won't bounce. <laughs> Uh, Chief Warrant Officer Sam Jacobs, he was the comic relief. His job was to spout out some witty lines throughout the movie. That's what he did. And then there was Dr. Cattell. He was the standard scientist type for these type of movies. I mean, he even had a pipe. So those are the characters of the movie. Uh, the ending of the movie with the day the earth stood type warning of people of earth. It was, it was okay ending. It wasn't a bad ending. It was just okay. I think that this movie could have been better if they'd put some more money into it and had some top-rate actors. I mean, if they'd have took the act, the talent and the money they had on Forbidden Planet and This Island Earth, they could have made a really good movie. But they didn't. So overall, this is a decent, low-budget science fiction movie. It's definitely worth watching once. I don't see the rewatch value. I mean, I've seen it when I was a little kid, and I've watched it a couple times in prepping for this podcast. But I, I can't see watching this movie more than once every two or three years. I mean, it's okay. It's one of those, like, a, it would be one of the movies that they show on MeTV on Saturday nights. One of those type of movies. I would recommend this to all science fiction fans. At least once. You can see this movie on Netflix. It's on Hulu Plus. Get it from the library. Don't buy it. On a scale from 1 to 10, I'd give this movie a 7. And those are my comments about this movie. That's it for this week's podcast. Before I end this week's podcast, I want to thank Rico again for giving me an opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank those who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoyed it. Rico will be back next week with Kenny, and they will be covering the movie Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. I'll be back soon with another classic science fiction movie. Until then, take care of yourself. This is M5, signing off. Oh,
listening to Treks in Sci-Fi. Join the forum at treksinsci-fi.com forward slash forum or write to Rico today. TrekSF at gmail.com Until next time, live long and prosper. Treks in Sci-Fi. Let it bring you down.